Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. With us, a repeat guest. I think this is our third time uh, doing this, which means we've had great prior conversations. Just love this guy. Love his content. He's uh, somewhat contrarian, which is always refreshing to me because I'm a dyed-in-the-wolf cynic. He is the nation's most trusted, no BS multifamily investment advisor. He is none other than Darren Garman. Darren, welcome back to Street Smart Success. Roger, it, it's great to be here. It, it is our third time, isn't I, it? Um, I think it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to having, having another conversation with you. I know the last two conversations that we've had, I don't know if we've solved every problem out there, uh, but I think we got close. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> so, why we... It, <laughs> Had we, had we solved everyone, there wouldn't have been a need for this third this third meeting, Darren. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, awesome, man. I'm looking forward to it. It's good to be with you. Again. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I love talking to you, and I love your content. And you, you have an unvarnished approach to how you deliver message. And I guess along those lines, and along the notion of not having solved the world's problems, the world, and let let's let's uh, let's limit the world to multifamily real estate. The world of multifamily real estate has only gotten hairier since the last time we spoke, which was near a year ago. And so interest rates had already taken a pretty heavy climb. But give me the the take on the environment, what's happening, what is going to happen uh, from a macro, and then you could break it down to micro in terms of your markets, however you want to answer the question, Darren. Yeah, sure. And and, and anytime I'm, I'm throwing some things out here, Roger, just go ahead and tell me to push pause so we can, you know, we can stop and go in any direction you want. I guess the, the macro would be uh, there are uh, a number of owner operators now, and there will be even more to come uh, in the next, I would say, six to 18 months that are in operational trouble. Um, anywhere from maybe right now, kind of some storm clouds brewing all the way to full-blown, holy crap, what do we do? Uh, and I think what we're going to be seeing over the next six to 18 months is going to be more of the, oh my God, holy crap, what are we going to do scenario than the storm clouds, uh, than the storm cloud scenario. And, and I don't want to paint the picture where that's the case with everybody. Okay. Where that's the case with you know most owner operators because it's not. Uh, but what I do think is more the case are those owner operators that have overpaid, over leveraged, and became over optimistic in their purchases and acquisitions over the last I'll just say three to four years. Okay, so I think on a macro level. Uh, you're going to have, there's going to be a, a lot of pain coming for a lot of owners. Uh, that also spells, though, uh, I think opportunity. Uh, I think there'll be some opportunity for, for guys like you, guys like me, you know, folks that are watching or listening. I think there's going to be some opportunities there, too, to come. Uh, so, so that's kind of my macro. That, that's kind of my macro picture. Um, of it. And it's kind of interesting because... It's not as if I'm saying that multifamily in general is in trouble. So it's not like we're saying, I'm saying, oh, geez, the whole, the whole sector is, is going to have problems uh, because we know that there's going to be continued demand to rent. We know there's going to be continued demand for housing. So it's not as if we're going to see 50, 60, 70% vacancy or 10 to 20% occupancy soon. Oddly enough, that's not going to be the case. But what is going to be the case is no matter how well you run a business, if your expenses are going to continue to exceed your income, and as a result of those expenses, if the value is going to continue to drop 
as a result of that and a result of raising higher, of, of um, rising interest rates. Uh, there's going to be some problems for some folks. And I think we're seeing it now. We're going to see more in the future. Okay. And then a lot of pain. What does a lot of pain mean? What are, what are where the rubber hits the road? What, what happens? Yeah, well, the, the, the pain is going to really be, do we either default or do we raise more capital to keep this thing afloat? I mean, that's like the, the simplest way I can explain it to you is do we just default? Do we lick our wounds? Do we move on, chalk this up and whatever, put whatever positive spin on it we can, you know, as, as, as the property is, is going to continue to uh, decline in performance? Or do we see a light at the tunnel somewhere down the road where it's going to make sense to raise more capital, continue to use that capital to keep the properties afloat and to keep the properties operating? Uh, I mean, that's really the two choices that people are going to, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but not by much. I mean, that's really the, the two choices that, the, that, that we're seeing in terms of pain. And we've already heard of pain uh, I mean, in a, in a small way, I mean, if you're someone that at least pays a little bit of attention to publications, especially that have stories about real estate, financial publications, some that have, that are well-known, if you pay attention to those and, and reading those and seeing those, uh, those articles, those headlines, I mean, that, that it's already happened. Um, choices like that are already being made. I mean, we're seeing it more. Uh, I think in the office sector, in the office building, uh, office tower world more than anywhere else. But we're also seeing it multifamily and we're going to see even more. There's a variation um, and, you know, you, you've been doing this for decades. So you're, you're kind of the guy. What about, what about uh, operators going to their lenders and, and trying to say, um, hey, you know, uh, give us a break and let's negotiate the terms of our terms and, and what about that modifications? Is that a, is that a possibility? Oh, hell yeah. And it's the first thing. So um, it's the first thing that, that needs to be done. And I'll give you quickly, I'll give you kind of my, you know, the military uses the, the DEFCON situation, the DEFCON scenario, you know, in terms of DEFCON three, you know, gee whiz, we have a pretty, we have a decent probability of going to war all the way to DEFCON 1, you know, holy crap, we're, we're, we're going to war, okay? And so let me use those analogies really quick that I think can answer that question and maybe provide some, a little more insight into that. So DEFCON 3, and what we're talking about in the, in the multifamily world is basically what we've already pretty much discussed. Holy crap, we've got problems, storm clouds are, 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 are coming in, uh, looking at what we're doing now with our operations and, and even looking into the future We've got problems and issues. So we need to do everything we can here to make this as good as we possibly can in terms of two things, making sure that we're able to pay the bills, including those, including those loan payments. And we need to start at least thinking about strategizing, contacting and having conversations with our lenders. If, if we can't figure it out ourselves, if we can't do it ourselves and if, if hopefully we don't have to contact the lender to do that. Because a lot of times when you contact lenders, many operators are, are, are um, reluctant to do that because now all of a sudden it raises red flags on the lender's end saying, uh-oh, these guys got problems. Uh, now we need to put them on our radar screen in terms of a possible asset that we could be, we could be looking at. Okay, so that's DEFCON 3. Then you go to DEFCON 2. So Roger, you get to DEFCON 2 by doing all of waving all the magic wands, you know, from an operational standpoint, doing everything you can, doing all the strategy, implementing everything. And still at the end of the day, you're not able to make things work. Okay. DEFCON 2 is now you can contact the lender. Okay. And you say, okay, look, here's where we're at. Here's what we're doing to stem the tide. Here's the kind of help that we think we need to get that would really help us. How can we work together to go through this hopefully short period of time where we just need a little relief in terms of the debt that we're servicing with you? You know, whether that's 
if you're not on interest only, whether it's interest only, whether it's deferring payments for a time. It's getting creative with your team and then in turn getting creative with the lender and coming up with a solution that could temporarily work. And with the temporary solution, Roger, obviously you want to have that temporary solution be as long as possible, you know, in order to make sure that you're able to um, overcome that, you know, you're able to finally get over that hump and you reach the light at the end of the tunnel, right? So that's where that comes in. And then DEPCON 1 is simply, we tried everything, the lenders worked with us, we've done everything we can. This is, this, we, we've now come to the conclusion, regrettably, that this isn't going to work. We've done everything. Now it's, you know, having those conversations of, unfortunately, uh, default, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, all of the other collateral damage that comes out of that with company, if you've got partners, if it's, you know, all those kinds of things, there's collateral damage there, you know, that's DEPCON 1. But coming full circle to your question, that was a long answer, I know. But coming full circle to your question is, uh, usually what, what's going to happen, and really what should happen is getting your own house in order first. And then before, if, and if you have to approach that lender, you're at least showing them that you do have your house in order. You do have a plan. You do want to discuss some strategy. You're not coming in there like, you know, hands up in the air, like, what the hell do we do? I mean, that's the worst place and that's the worst position to be in. You want to at least be coming to those meetings with some kind of a strategy, some kind of a plan. And whether or not, you know, the lender agrees with it and goes with your exact plan, that's one thing. But you certainly don't want to be showing up to that meeting and having those conversations. And, from a position of, uh, you know, holy cow, what do we do? What do we do? Hmm. So let's say you're at DEFCON 3, and it wasn't too long of an answer, by the way, as a great answer. You're waving the white flag, right? You've tried everything, and, and the lender's given you some grace to, to make things work. And let's say that the market turns, rents decline, uh, occupancy declines because you're in a market where there's too much building, you know, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. All mm -hmm. these different scenarios that are probably, there are, like you said, they're already playing out. Um, so the lender kind of looks at it and goes, okay, well, here's our basis in the property. You know, here's, I guess my question is if they take it back, I guess their bottom is, you know, the, their cost is what their cost of, their cost of funds are. And so are there mm -hmm. scenarios where they they have to sell it for less than even what their cost of funds are because they just can't get it off their books for more than that. And they don't want to own the asset. And then, you know, can they, and can the system, can their institution, the system at large, even absorb that kind of carnage? I don't even know if I'm making the, you know, the, so, the questions even clear. Yeah. I mean, no, that, that, that's a great question. So the, the oversimplified answer is yes. Okay. But, but let me let me go into the weeds on that a little bit. And so let me start with, with something that's going to be kind of obvious, but it's, it's worth mentioning. A lot of what you just asked depends on really two things. One is the relationship you have with the lender in the first place. Okay. And so if you look at me as example, now I'm going to use this as, as example, not as the way everybody should do it. Okay. But just as example. So the lenders that I have, uh, for the most part, are local community commercial banks, okay, that I've established, in some cases, decades worth of relationship with. And so if, hopefully it never gets to that point, but if I'm in that kind of scenario, do I know for sure? No. But I'm pretty sure that there's going to be a lot of help and a lot of understanding and a lot of decision-making on whether we finally take this property back and go through a sale process with it, there's going to be a lot of different um, attempts at not having to do that. Okay. And so a lot of it depends on relationship with lenders. I mean, I know some operators, I mean, they can't stand their lenders. They can't stand even talking to them. They can't stand. It's just a, a really adversarial relationship. It's like we just put up with each other just because we have to, damn it. And that's kind of it. And in those kinds of relationships are going to have the most problem. So I know it sounds kind of obvious, but, but, but relationship is number one. Number two then becomes kind of interesting. So if there's personal loan guarantees involved, okay? And so 
and with, with, with some loans, there's personal loan guarantees involved. And if there are, and you throw in maybe kind of an adversarial relationship, then I think it's much easier for a lender to then go down the road of, okay, you know, based on all of the covenants of the loan, um, we're going ahead and we're going to go through the foreclosure process. Okay. And I could see that happening more, obviously, if there are personal guarantees involved. Um, if there are no personal guarantees involved, then I see the chances of that maybe being a little bit less uh, because obviously there's no one we can go back to in the event we end up selling the property for less than what the property is owed. And then the third part is the market. Okay, the market. And so, you know, if, if I'm in a market where it's actually pretty good and maybe it, it's a case of, you know, the owner operator, uh, maybe just, maybe just from inexperience or whatever, just got a little bit in over their, in over their head. And it, it, it's a property that's going to possibly go through foreclosure. But if I'm in a market that's pretty active, okay, it's pretty good. And if I'm a lender that's getting three or four phone calls a day from people saying, hey, if any of these things come up, let me know. Um, that's, of course, something versus if I'm in a, um, if I am in, in a market where uh, things would be much rougher in terms of resale, in terms of getting interest in the property, in terms of somebody else coming in and buying it, you know, that's something, that's something else I, I, I think entirely. And, and look, at the end of the day, nobody really wants to go through this. Um, and actually one of the main reasons they, I mean, financially um, is, is a big reason, but another reason is that it makes everybody look bad. Okay. Nobody wants to look bad. You know, lenders don't want to look like, oh, you know, the lenders look bad because then it looks like they're making loans to, um, to people that they shouldn't have been making in the first place, right? Their underwriting is screwed up. Their process is screwed up. The folks on the, you know, if it's a local bank on the credit committee are not smart. I mean, so it makes, in the folks that are maybe doing the underwriting from the agency stamp, I mean, it makes people look bad and nobody wants to look bad. And how do we, how can we not look bad here? So, so that, even though that doesn't have anything to do with the numbers, it's, it's realistically part of the process. And then to your point, does it finally make sense to take this thing back? And, you know, after going through all of those things that I, you know, pretty much discuss, I think that what you're going to see is, um, you know, there, there's going to be some cases where it depends. And what I just mentioned in those three or four points is really kind of depends kind of things. But financially, do I think that a market could absorb, could, that, that we could absorb it? I think we could. Uh, do I think it would be uh, something that would take some time? I think it would take years, depending on how bad it is. But the thing I point to, and, and, and you remember this, and, and many others that are watching and listening remember this, we went through something you know, pretty exhaustive and bad back in the late 80s and early 90s with the savings and loans and the Resolution Trust Corporation. I mean, I still hear and tell stories about that. And we made it through that just fine at the end of the day. And I think it would be the same, you know, the same case, you know, the same case here. Was that at that time, interest rates were off, were, were high teens, maybe even as high as low 20s, but definitely high teens. What part did that play in that dynamic? Um, it played, it played a significant part. And depending on how you wanted to slice that, uh, I guess you could make the argument, Roger, it played, uh, it was the most significant part all the way down to it's not as significant as you think. And the main reason that is, is a lot of the borrowing that happened back then was really based on 100, 110, 120% of a property's value. Okay. So that was one part of it. So if you're able to go in, and you're able to borrow that much money, um, that, not surprisingly, can be problematic. And it wasn't really, an, uh, it wasn't really the, the deciding factor for a lot of the investing decisions and loan decisions was not really based on the economics of the property at that point in time. 
It was based on, well, what do we think this thing's going to be doing a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, okay? You couple that with the depreciation schedules that you were able to get back then, you could depreciate a residential property in 15 years. Um, and if you were creative with that, you could run a depreciation schedule where your investment in that property, Roger, would be back to you through tax savings in less than two years. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. Yeah. And so because of that, the normal financial process that you, I, many of our listeners or anybody watching would go through in terms of, you know, doing the, um, doing the analysis of the property, that pretty much wasn't really happening because it was more like, well, I'm going to invest my money. I'm going to get most, if not all of it back within one or two years. And gee whiz, I hope it all works out economically over here, you know, and I think it's going to, but not hardly any attention was paid to that. It was more based on getting into a property with really hardly any money out of pocket or no money out of pocket in the first two years. And then hoping, rolling the dice that it all works out. And savings and loans went along with this and went ahead and just let people borrow and borrow and borrow. And of course, not surprisingly, you know, it, it, it turned into one of the biggest financial catastrophes we've seen. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the way you describe that and the, and the details are different for sure. Um, but it, it does kind of make me feel a little bit like it's, there's, there is a, a one, one com, a, a, a maybe one common thread. And that is, like you said, the last four to five years or whatever is a lot of the, the bridge stuff was all on. It, it, nobody considered, no one considered that the interest rates were going to go up you know, 2.53 X is, a, is, a, is even a possibility. And so everything was on the come and that's causing a tremendous, that, that's, that's like this obvious, that's abundantly obvious is what's creating a lot of the brain damage right now. Yeah. Here's what I would say about that. If anyone three years ago said that, no, no let, let, me, let me put it to you this way. If anyone today says well, yeah, three years ago, I knew interest rates would basically go to two or three X what they, what they were. They're lying. Nobody, nobody saw this come. Nobody saw this come. You know, nobody's that smart. Nobody's got that kind of crystal ball to see that that, that was coming. Okay. But the problem, though, is not you. So you can't really blame. You can, you can blame that a little bit. But the problem is because of so much optimism, Many owner operators over the last three or four years, when they purchased their properties, they made no contingency plans of, oh crap, if it doesn't work out like we think it's going to work out, what can we do? What can we put in place? What should we at least at be at least be thinking of doing, right? As we go into this property, none of that happened. None of that happened. And um, I I would say, I would bet. A large portion of owner operators that might be in trouble now, future owner operators that are going to be in trouble, if they would have gone through that process, you know, they'd probably be singing a little different song right now. Of course, that's a little bit of hindsight and kind of, you know, it, understandably, but that was one of the problems, you know, to your point on, you know, betting on the come, there was no conversation of, okay, well, if we can't, we can't increase our rents 10% a year. If we, if this happens or if that happens, what do we do? There's no conversations about that. Let's just put a little bit of money in reserve because we kind of have to. And then let's just do that. Uh, but then let's just move forward. Well, you know, we're seeing, we're kind of seeing the results of that. And I think we're going to be seeing more results yeah. um, of that. future. Yeah. A lot of people or a lot of people that are inexperienced or have been, you know, over the last five years, they just, can't conceive the notion of a rainy day and how rainy it can get. And so, like you said, you use the term optimistic. And so uh, to me, and that that's, can be a euphemism for unrealistic, but that's, that's a whole other conversation. Let me, let me share with you a quick story. And, and, and th th this is very instructive. Um, I was at, and I was in Las Vegas uh, two Januaries ago at a mastermind, mastermind meeting with a bunch of, uh, a bunch of, a bunch of guys like us, you know, men, women, owner operators. Okay. And, you know, a lot of those folks are sitting around 
bragging about how much they're raising rent and, and how great things are going, et cetera, et cetera. Which by the way, God bless them, that's great. Okay. I, I use my time that I basically said, look, you guys better understand this isn't going to last and you better at least be making some plans on things not going as good as they are now in terms of rental increases, in terms of, you know, operational efficiencies and, and, and all those kinds of things. Okay. I started to get like booed. Okay. And in a friendly way, I started to get booed while I'm, I'm, I'm telling them this. And so I asked them, and this was the most instructive part. Now there's like about 40, 40, 50 of us in a room. I said, how many of you have gone through any kind of recession? Less than 10 people raised their hand. Less than 10 people raised their hand. Um, and so that's very instructive. Uh, am I saying that in order for you to even think about investing or expanding in multifamily or any other real estate investment, you have had to go through a recession? No, of course not. But when 80 plus percent of the room has never gone through bad stuff, they're making decisions from a foundation of not ever having to go through bad stuff, right? And so, yeah, I, again, I, I think that, 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 that I think that's instructive. Yeah, no, I, I get it because you just, you can't contemplate how bad things can get. You think you know, you know it from a textbook perspective, but it's different to know yeah. something from a textbook perspective than to have personally experienced the agony of going through something. It's just not the same. Hundred percent, and, and I say that with, you know, let's let's just say expensive experience. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Here, so so the opportunity part, we're gonna we're gonna transition to the opportunity for guys like you or me or anybody that's uh, got money at that point to invest in the next sixteen, eighteen months, twenty four months, whatever the heck it is, um, is the opportunity. Uh, what drives the opportunity? It's an obvious question, but you answer it. And how how big will the opportunity will be in terms of specifically right now, a lot of deals I look at, even now, they say in multifamily specifically, they'll say, well, the, you know, it's a five to seven year term, average cash on cash, seven to eight percent. But, you know, basically the first couple of years, you know, it's three four, and then maybe it gets to eight to 10, perform it out, let's say years four, five, six, seven, whatever it's five, whether it's five to seven or what have you. Does that change? And what, what are, what are good opportunities? What does that mean? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think it, I think it does change. I, I think it does. Uh, there will be, uh, like, like most anything when it comes to opportunities, there'll be some that just because they're in default, in foreclosure, doesn't mean that you should buy the darn thing. I mean, it will have things about it that is still would make it a property or properties that you probably would want to avoid. So you, you want to make sure you're not just, and again, I'm oversimplifying a bit, you're not just out looking to buy and invest in, in foreclosures or default properties and default just for the sake of doing it. Cause there's, that doesn't mean that every single deal is going to be good. Okay. And so well, let's talk about the ones that are going to be good. Okay. And everybody's got their own definition of what that is, but let's talk about what the debt, what, 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 what's going to be good. There's really only going to be two groups of people, two groups of investors that will have access to the really, really good stuff. Okay. The first are the really rich people. Okay. The really rich, the real wealthy are going to have pretty much a first upfront, first in line shot at these. Um, as you and I are speaking, there are companies, family offices, you name it, getting geared up and ready to go on this and are probably already working on this. So uh, the really good ones. I mean, that should be a surprise. Uh, the folks that have the capital are going to have access to those. It's like Disney Fast Pass access. Okay. So that'll be number one. Number two, the other group are going to be folks that are well connected and well networked. Okay. Well connected and well networked. Um, and so having the connections, the networks, the relationships, with the decision makers 
that have to ultimately make the kinds of decisions on what do we do with this property? What's our next step? If I'm thinking two or three steps ahead, who do I contact? Where do I go? What's the easiest? What's the easiest way for me to go with this? You want to be, if you're not in that rich category, okay, you're not connected to um, a family office or a large private equity company. You want to be connected to a network of somebody that can get that kind of access and has those kinds of relationships to get those access, okay, to those properties. Here's what's going to be different than what hasn't been different in the past, I think. And it's going to be this. It used to be. So when, when I look back to the resolution trust days, uh, corporation days, um, and even in the single family home, like the, like the real estate crash of the 90s, okay, you were able to get access to some pretty good properties by basically picking up your phone, okay, calling the real estate agent that you know in town and saying, hey, look, um, I hear there might be some pretty good foreclosures or real estate discounted projects coming up. If you find anything, let me know, okay? And there were a fair number of deals done that way, okay? That will not be the case this goal. Now, will there be some? Sure. Sure, there will be. I'm not saying it's going to be non-existent. But 90% of the properties that will be what you would think, what I would think, that what our listeners or viewers would think are good opportunities are going to go to those two categories. Either those that have money or have access to capital, have it already ready to go, or if that's not the case, those that are very well networked in to the people and are looked at as the go-to people that they should be contacting when these properties become available and at a point where it looks like they're going to have to, uh, going to have to sell. Okay. And then are these go-to people, the lenders? Yes. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, well the, go, the go-to people uh, that, so if, if you're an opportunist, it, your go-to person is that. That's right, Roger. It's, it's, it's the lender. It's the servicer. It's the, uh, it's whomever is the connection that you need to make at whatever level that you're looking at. You know, so for me in kind of smaller town, Iowa, it'd be these local commercial bankers, commercial lenders, um, that I'd be continuing that networking relationship with. Now, if I'm in a larger city, maybe that's the case, but maybe there's more agency servicing people I need to be contacting and getting in touch with. Now, you'll run into situations where just because of how they, the rules that they're regulated by, not so much like um, FDIC regulations or banking regulations, but it may be a servicer's rule where they say, well, we have to put them on the market with a broker. We have to, you know, there might be those kinds of things in place. And so the goal is to find those things, find that out now, okay? And then start at least making some of those contacts with some of those folks that could potentially be getting these properties um, or getting a shot at marketing these properties if, if that looks like it could be the case. If you're uh, to, to what you were describing earlier, like about your situation, clearly you're networked in your market. You've been doing it a long time. You're a, you're a big player. Uh, so is that de facto access to these decision makers? So, you know, if you're in the town of, uh, uh, it doesn't matter. Let's call it Nashville. And some reason you're a big operator in Nashville and you've grown up there your whole life and most of your business or a big part of your business in that town. Uh, and you've just been, you know, in good times, bad, a, a steady borrower. And you've got, are, are you not de facto kind of in that, in that situation just by virtue of who you do? And in other words, if that were the case, which I don't know if it is, but if that were the case, then there's really nothing you need to do above and beyond. It would then be implied to that lender that you would be at the ready to want to take on over those deals. I'm, I'm making it as a statement, but it's really intended as a question because I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's unpack that for a second because I, I, I think you could look at it actually a couple of ways. So um, if I am that established if I am that established per person, let's just say I'm that established man, woman in the market, been there 20 years, and if I'm established, um, you still better be making those connections and making sure uh, you, you don't want to be resting. 
There's no way you want to be just resting and just hoping and thinking that, oh yeah, they know to contact me. No, you want to be making sure you're doing that and reminding people because you never know. I mean, your connection at XYZ Bank that you've known for 20 years, he may retire next month. Somebody new comes in, now all of a sudden, oh, ooh, I really didn't know much about you. So there's always those kinds of changing environmental things that are going on in the background, which is the reason why if you're an established um, owner operator, no matter where you're at, you still want to be reaching out and doing that. So that's, that's like number one. Number two, let's say you're not established. Okay. Let's say that, you know, what I'm talking about, what we're talking about is, 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 I don't know, resonating with you. You're like, yeah, I'm not really established in, in, in my market or where I'm at. You know, how do I, how do I at least get on their radar screen? Well, you need to be making contact with the decision makers at these institutions and finding out who they are and letting them know that, look, I'm a real estate, I'm a multifamily investor. I'm looking at purchasing anywhere up to two or 300 units in the market. I'm ready to go on something. And, and oh, by the way, not only conventional properties, but if you have, if you ever have something that comes up that could maybe be in some kind of distress, that maybe the, the owner might be having issues, it might be a concern for you, make sure that I'm on that contact list with you because that would also be the kind of property we would want to have a shot at. Because here's what a mistake a lot of people think. A lot of people think, well, if there's already established people in the market, it would kind of be a mistake for me if I'm not. I mean, it would be kind of a waste of time, excuse me, for me to do that if I'm not. And nothing could be further from the truth because of two main things. Number one, the established person, Roger, may not think that the newest property that's on the market is called the newest opportunity is a good one. All right. Just because it's an opportunity doesn't mean the established person is going to take a shot at it. Um, it doesn't mean that they're going to take a shot and buy everything, right? So you don't want to use that as an excuse um, because what one man, what one person's great property is another person's, you know. So you never want to take that position and think, oh, there's already a whole bunch of competition in the market. There's already a lot of people doing this. Hey, you never know. Um, the second part is they may not have the capital ready for that. Maybe they put a private project under contract a month ago, two months ago, and it's going to take most of the cookies they got in the cookie jar. And all of a sudden, you've got a lender that, con that, that says, hey, I've got this project coming up. Again, you could be in the perfect situation to do that. So, uh, you know, both of those situations, you need to at least go a little bit past the surface, dig a little bit deeper. And if you do the work there, whether established, you, you better make sure that that network is still you know, pretty much there. Um, and even if you're not, that's, that's not an excuse not to at least do something and make some of those contacts. Interesting. Okay. So if you're in the, the group one where you're a family office or private equity and you're, like you said, the rich people, but it sounds like, Darren, even in that case, you're not necessarily de facto because like you said, personnel is always changing at the banks or at the lending institutions. And it sounds even then, it's almost like it's its own business plan that needs to be attacked as something that is it's just that. It's a, 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 a different business arm of what you're doing in and of itself. And that you've got to start making those contacts now, even if you're the rich people. In other words, like you said, even if you have a ton of money and you're just sitting there, it doesn't mean that the new person, the bank's going to come out, come and reach out to you. Is that correct? 150%. Let me, I'll give you a quick example. We have been working on trying to buy a property locally here. It's about 180 units for years. I mean, for years. Now, this isn't a property that is going through any pain that we're talking about, but the analogies will still apply to what we're talking about. And so, you know, we've got a presence here. People know us, people are aware of us, and we've been trying to buy this property. We've can, you know, been um, having the communications at network, you know, with the owner and, and doing what needs to be done. All right. Well, come to find out the owner passes away. Okay. Owner passes away. And now the owner's kids are involved as part of the estate. Well, guess who we've not talked one word to? Those kids. Those kids have no idea who we are. None. And so if we would not 
have continued, okay, to have conversations with now them, and they're not looking at doing anything yet, but if we would have not continued that and just rested on our laurels and said, well, gee, everybody knows who we are, we would not have a shot at that. We'd not have a shot at that. So, you know, things re- evolve, environment evolves, so you've got to continue to do that. And to your point, creating maybe a little mini kind of business plan, a little mini, you know, branch of the business to do that, making sure somebody's responsible for that, smart, smart move. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, on the default side, um, I've heard... And I, I don't know if I remember this correctly, but like even in uh, 08, 09, the multifamily defaults, correct me if I'm wrong, were like 0.04%. So it's still, it's still pretty, it, for, for multifamily, it's still pretty rare. Are my numbers right? It, 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 is, it is rare, uh, definitely. So, I mean, the time period that you're talking about, so if I even think about rural heartland of America, okay, I don't remember seeing more than a handful of multifamily properties in Trump during that time. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you're, 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 you're right. Is there won't be, and it kind of got, gets back to what we were talking about early on is not everybody's going to be going through what we're talking about. It's a lot of, I say the vast majority are going to be those Older operators that have purchased in the last four to five years, which of course, you know, obviously makes that number smaller anyway. And it's so you're right. And that also that also tells you that you better be good at what we're talking about in terms of making those connections. Because again, if you've only got a handful, a handful of really good deals that might come up in the next 12 months, depending on where you're at. You want to make sure that you're going to get access to those, and mainly because of that. And uh, the other thing I'll tell you is, I apologize for my dogs barking. <laughs> I, I have two. I, I I have two myself. No worries. <laughs> you know, I, I try to soundproof everything as good as I can. And it, it, it's if it's the FedEx guy, it doesn't matter. You know, they're still they still want to make sure their presence is known. So. Uh, my apologies, but they wanted to make sure they got on your podcast. So I'm, I'm glad they at least got on the podcast. They're welcome on my podcast. My <laughs> dogs have been on mine like uh, like almost every day, faintly in the background for the same reason. And, and these days, Am- well, my wife, personally, you should invest in Amazon and UPS uh, and FedEx just because of my wife, the amount of things that she buys that, that, that arrive at our house every day and then correlates to the amount of barking that my dogs do. But, but I, I'll turn it back to you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, so to your point, I, I, I think you're right. It's, it's not like there's going to be hundreds and thousands of these flooding the market at once. I think there will be a significant number and that doesn't mean that every single one's going to be worth pursuing, but the real good opportunities are going to be available and you're going to want to go through some of the processes, at least, you know, to your point, even making a little arm of what you're doing uh, just to make sure that you got access. Because if you don't have access, I mean, that's like the first point. You, you want as many of these crossing your desk as possible if and when they come up. I mean, that's like step one, because if you don't have that, you know, obviously, obviously you're not going to be able to get in on that. You're going to be watching from the side. Do you have a sense, and this is ac- this is asking you to have a crystal ball, so answer it how you will. However the dust settles and whenever the dust settles, uh, just broadly, what do you think, uh, you know, cash on cash will be, cash on cash yields will be with quote unquote great opportunities over the next couple of years? I mean, you think it's going to be possible to step into a, you know, a B or B plus property with, with a value add component, but in day one, walk into an 8% return on your money? Or is that, I mean, what, what, do, what do you see that scenario being? Yeah, I, I think it'll be 8%. I think it'll be better. I think it'll be better than that. I think you'll have a period of, when, when you, when you the, the, there will be some demand for these which will drive this market a little bit, which will keep that cash on cash yield in that 
I say down, and that's not really, you know, 8% is pretty good. When I say down to, um, to 8%, I think that you'll see that initially in terms of, you know, people wanting, wanting to get in. Okay. So I think you'll see that at that point. Um, but as the market then starts to really, I don't know if the word correct is the right word, but I'm going to use it. So as the market starts to correct a little bit in terms of value, okay, in terms of what now the comparable apartment communities are now selling for, uh, whether it's price per door, whether it's the cap rate, okay, now you're going to be able to be picking these up where they're going to be producing in that higher single digit and even lower double digit range. Um, I, I think that will definitely be the case. Now, the key to that's going to be really two things, I think. Um, the first is to be patient. Do um, you want to be patient with this? The second is really making sure that that network that we talked about, and I'm try not trying to beat a dead horse here that you and I have covered already, that network is, is, is there so you've got the connection and got the access, okay? So if you've got that access and the market is at a point where those comparables are starting to now kind of correct themselves and those values are going down, which they will, um, now you're going to be able to pick those up at, at a price where those, I think, high single digit, lower double digit uh, cash on cash rates, I think, become more realistic. The wild card in all of this is going to be what are the interest rates going to be at in terms of borrowing money, right? That's going to be kind of the wild card. Um, and so what I've said here is, I mean, if, if rates are over 10% at some point in time, and, and if, if we're looking at doing something like this, well, I mean, possibly the chances of, of that higher cash on cash we're talking about, I think there's probably less of a chance. But if there's at least, a, you know, a, a little uh, flattening and, and maybe a little bit more of a, uh, of a decline, then I think maybe it comes a little more, a little more realistic. Glad you mentioned inter interest rates uh, because you, you just reminded me to ask the, ask the question. You on this uh, subject uh, and, and uh, are a, I believe, to be somewhat of a contrarian. Um, most people, uh, and maybe they're just looking at the world through rose covered glasses or for whatever, but you're one of the few that are, that I think you've said can easily go to 10%. I listened to a podcast a, uh, a few weeks ago, and then I had the gentleman on my, on my show, his name is Jim Rogers. He's actually a pretty well-renowned, you know, five, six decade investor. He started a fund with George Soros, like in the seventies. He's, this is not, he's not a young guy by any stretch, but he, he believes Darren that interest rates, he, he outdoes you. He thinks he doesn't see how interest rates don't go into high double digits, like to 18%. He didn't say that, but, but that's the gist of what he's saying. So he's, he's further out than you are. Why do you believe that? And just, and do you think he's crazy. There's no way we get to 18%. He's just saying we're printing so much money that creates inflation. There's no way to dodge this bullet. Uh, ultimately, our, our currency gets devalued, all the stuff that I don't really understand. But it's his, his, his position is that this has always happened in history for centuries, and it's unavoidable. The question is when. So what's your take on interest rates and all of that? Can, can, we, can we get to 18% again? Yeah, I well the, the the first thing I thought of is is the you know the the expert that that you were talking about um he he was definitely around during the Jimmy Carter era probably correct right? because if, if he's talking if he's talking eighteen twenty percent uh, you know that probably has a little, has a little bit <laughs> has a little bit of influence and so look I um I think that we have folks that are making decisions uh, that the decisions that they've made so far. They're not getting the results economically that they want to be getting in terms of controlling inflation. Um, uh, and I mean, you see it, I see it. The news that the reports keep coming out that these interest rates really aren't having the kind of impact economically um, in terms of uh, taming this economy down and, and really having 
which in, in their, in the decision makers opinion, um, effect of holding down inflation. Uh, I don't see this. I don't see this stopping. I, I like, here, here's like my, my micro microcosm example. So we just went out to, we flew out to Idaho over the weekend and watched my son play in a football game. Okay. And so uh, we're going through airports. Um, and I don't know if you've been in an airport lately, but you can't even move in an airport anymore. I mean, it's jam-packed. It's jam-packed. Okay. And flights are not cheap. I mean, to just to fly to Idaho and back for Gene and I, I mean, it was, you throw some frequent flyer miles in there, which is good. But I mean, if we wouldn't, I mean, it's a couple thousand dollars at least. Okay. And, and so not that you want to use the crowd at the airport as your foundation for making decisions. Okay. But you can tell that in the eyes of the folks making those decisions, I mean, they want it to be half as many people because that tells them that what they're doing is working and people aren't continuing to spend money at a higher and higher and higher inflated rate. So in my mind, I think this goes on for at least another year, possibly two. And I think if that's the case, I mean, they've got no choice but to keep coming to the table, raising rates even more, thinking it's going to have an impact, finding out it's not having the impact that they thought. Well, then let's do it again. And then let's do it again. And I, I, I think because of that, I think we get to, um, I think we get over 10%. Now, do I think we get to 18%? I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever count it out. All right. I wouldn't ever um, say that's never going to happen. But I'd be surprised if it got up into those higher teens. I would. Right. Yeah. I mean, who, who knows if you think down the road, you know, two, three, 10 year, you know, it's, it, it's crazy to say A, A well, B or C. Here's the other thing that you and I don't know. And no, nobody knows is what kind of thing is going to happen outside of us in the, in, 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 in nationally or globally that could impact all of us. Right. You know, um, I mean, there, there's a war going on right now. There's a bunch of other stuff going on right now. So you, you, you take one of those few things, taking a wrong turn, and, you know, all of a sudden, our predictions may, may either look pretty good or, or maybe not so much. You know, to me, we're, you know, I, I'm a doom and gloomer, Darren. So I, I, it's very easy for me to envision very bad things. That's just my disposition. Um, it makes me think that, you know, as a, as a, as a limited partner. So I have, I have a lot of flexibility where I put my money is, is find things that have no debt. You know what I mean? And if you've got mm -hmm. good reels, I said, well, and especially multifamily or, or it could be a house, whatever, but especially multifamily, unless you're in a crazy overbuilt market. But if, if you're like where you are in Iowa and you have no leverage, and most people don't do that for myriad reasons, which I understand. But man, that sure hedges a lot of bets, man, because that you control the borrowing costs, right? You take that out of the equation and, you know, it, 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 you know, it, 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 it mitigates one heck of a lot of risk, but that's stating the abundantly obvious. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, related to that, I have a, I have a question for you. I want to get your take on something, if, if, if you'd allow me. So my question for you is something I recently noticed. Maybe, I shouldn't say recently, maybe over the last couple of months. And it's that I'm getting more and more communications, mainly emails and solicitations from brokers that are looking at selling the general partner interest in a project. Oh, interesting. Okay. A lot of GP. GP sales over the last week, actually over the last, I, that's not, that's not accurate. Over the last two weeks, I've gotten at least three. Okay. And I never used to see it. Now I'm seeing, let's just say at least one every couple of weeks. Now, Roger, and, and maybe in my mind, I, I, I'm curious to hear what you have to say. In my mind, if the general partner is looking at getting out, Okay, there could be a variety of very logical reasons for that to be the case. Okay, um, but I would think 
that those that would have the first right to be buying that general partner would be the limit, I would think. Would be what? Um, would be, oh, oh, would be the limited. Would be the limited okay, part. right. Got it. Yeah. I would think the very first right of right of refusal or right to purchase or option, whatever you want to call it, I would think would fall to the limited. I don't know, but I would think that would be the case. And so if I'm being marketed a general partner's interest, and if what I'm assuming that the limited partners would have a first right of refusal to buy it, and obviously they're not, what does that what does that tell you? Does that tell you anything, or am I am I overthinking that a little bit? I don't know if you're overthinking it. Here's where where my reflex to the question, and I think you're the first person, Darren, to to your credit to ever ask me a question on my show, and that is and it makes you rarefied air. It's impressive. So uh, I, I guess where my mind goes, and I'm just is is when. Something like that happens and I'm an LP and I've put in what I put in. To me, it's a red flag, right? Right out of the gate. It makes me feel like the GP's abandoning ship. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an unsophisticated guy. It feels, it feels wrong to me. It feels like there's something wrong. And I'm going to be reluctant as I'll get out to put more money in. I, I feel as though something yep. has clearly gone awry with the business plan. And any more money, it's going to piss me off. And any more money then is just going to be, frankly, even two times the risk of my initial investment. And so to me, if they're, if they're shopping it to other GPs or other operators, it, it, I could see where instead of giving first refusal to the LPs, they probably just assume the LPs. And the other thing is LPs don't have the, the bankroll, man. They don't, they don't have it. Right. You know, they, they, they don't, they're stretched. That would be my sense. Yeah, I don't know okay. if that answers your question. Okay. Yeah, no, I'll tell you something. Interesting. It's interesting. I, I'll tell you something anecdotal, by the way, is that, as you may recall, so I'm in the Bay Area, uh, the land mm -hmm. of fruit, the land of fruits and nuts. And, um, but, 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 <laughs> but, 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 but I'm originally from Cleveland. And, you know, we go home every year with my family. I have two kids. And this is the first year in a long, long time, we're not going now because of the airfare. I mean, it cost me for four of us because two of my kids are, the dark, my kids are in college. So it's flying them here and flying them there. And then we all meet in Cleveland and it's like how many mm -hmm. people, nobody's going to Cleveland unless they're from Cleveland, but it's like the one weekend a year, everybody that's ever been from Cleveland their whole life from the last like 80 years is going there because Thanksgiving and so, of course. And right. And so the airlines just rip your head off. And we just had a wedding in a family wedding in Detroit. And I said to my wife, I'm like, and you know, we just saw everybody and 10, and we've done a lot of traveling this year because already, because we're empty nesters. And I'm like, you know what? I, I, you know, we just saw him 10K too much this year. So we're mm -hmm. not going to go. So, so, so they're going to have a huge crowd minus four people this year. <laughs> Population less four during that period of time. But, but, but I think the exact, by the way, my mind works exactly the way yours does when I'm in those airports and it's throngs of people and, and it just makes me really to reflect on our society. And I don't really have a judgment on it. I think it's just mm -hmm. what happens in a capitalistic society it's, you know, it's the, the, the smartest people end up with all the money. I mean, uh, hopefully nobody's listening to this podcast anymore, but it, and then, you know, but it's really, it's the, it's the proverbial rich get richer because like you said, man, people are still traveling and you know, they're spend, spending out the, you know what to go to mm -hmm. wherever they're going. And uh, anyway, just, just side commentary, we've been jawboning almost an hour. Um, a couple quick questions is where are the assets in your funds? Obviously in Iowa, how far do you go from your home base? Typically how many assets in a, in a fund and, and typically, you know, what's the equity raise? Yeah. So everything that we have is, is in the state of Iowa. Um, and it's within two and a half hour driving time from where I'm at. 
And yeah, for many people, they may think, well, geez, I mean, you know, that's like, that's like a silo. It's like you got a little silo going there, Darren. But, but for me, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a little, not, I'm not a little, I'm just uh, very paranoid about making sure I know what's going on, what's happening, where things are at. Um, and look, I'm not, I'm not personally visiting every property once a week. Okay. But I know the markets, I know them well, and I'm able to make the kind of decisions and make, do the kind of reactions if I need to, based on what I know. Um, and I'd rather be in that position versus, you know, owning something somewhere else, out of state, wherever, and then somebody's telling me and I'm depending on them, which again, it's not a wrong answer, but it's just not the answer that I'm. <laughs> so, um, so everything's in Iowa. And it's also in and around Iowa politically too. So I'm not going to get into like a political discourse, but the states of Illinois, the surrounding states and the states of Minnesota are very, very liberal, very liberal, especially in terms of how um, residents are looked at compared to landlords. So I stay out of there um, because I, I just think that's going to continue to be problematic areas to own real estate. The number of units that we got in that, let's just say two, two and a half hour radius is a little bit over 1200. Um, and then in terms of, in terms of equity raise, uh, what we do every March and September is if, if anyone has an interest in getting involved in owning you know, kind of joining our family here, you know, like our investment family, you know, and owning our, some of our stuff that those windows are open only during that time. And that's not like a, that's not like a marketing thing. It's, it's just the way that, you know, we established the company and, and the way that we've got the processes in place, uh, somewhat legally and somewhat due to securities too, um, is the reason that is. And so when we do, a, when we do a raise, uh, what we're looking at typically doing is, and I'll, I'll break it down to the individual investor. You know, what we're looking for is usually anywhere from $100,000 on up. That kind of gets you in the door to have the conversation in terms of um, in terms of maybe getting some access. But then after that, then it's another conversation of whether we're going to be a pretty good fitter. Yeah, but it's not a case, Roger, where we're just out there fanning the globe looking for capital to come in here, um, not having those important conversations of, okay, what are you looking to do, Roger? What are your goals? What are you trying to achieve over the next, you know, two, three, five years compared to what we're trying to do? And we want to make sure we got a good fit here. And then if we've got a good fit here, then we go ahead and we talk about, you know, how someone can, you know, formally get involved. So uh, kind of a, maybe I, I gave you more information on it than you probably wanted to know, but that's, that, that's basically, basically it. But do you, do you, Darren, do you do funds or single assets? What, what, what do you mean specifically by that? Oh, okay. Uh, well, a fund would be raising the equity prior to acquisition of properties and you go, got it. Yeah. Got it. We do, we do both. I do both. And so that's a great question, by the way. So what I do is the fund is the March and September window. Okay. That's the fund part of it. And you and I both know that opportunities that come up don't come up on any sort of a darn schedule, which, you know, is kind of aggravating. So those that come up on a schedule, not really related or around that March and September area, and depending where we are at with liquidity operations and those kinds of things, then we'll do a single kind of entity purchase if that's the case. So, so the answer is both. March and September, the fund outside of March and September, give or take a month or two, then it's that single asset purchase. I got it. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. And how does one, uh, you know, and you vet, which I really respect that your investors, uh, how does one reach you? Yeah, the easiest way to do that is just go to my website. It's darrengarman.com. And I'll spell that because a lot of times folks will get me confused with, with the GPS folks. <laughs> and so it's uh, DarrenGarman.com. It's D-A-R-I-N-G-A-R-M-A-N.com. Okay. And so once somebody's there, they can actually kind of get a, decent, a pretty good picture of what we're doing, what we're all about, kind of what really happens and what goes on. 
And so I think that's informative. And then in terms of, okay, now I, I kind of want to communicate with somebody and maybe start digging into this a little bit more. You know, there's opportunities and there's areas on that website that, uh, that they could do that. I understand. Darren, I cannot thank you enough uh, for taking your time to do this. I so much love talking to you. Uh, it's fun to talk to you, but you're also like a, a wealth of fantastic uh, decades perspective. And so I, I really, really appreciate it. And I thank you. Well, you know, I, I, I appreciate it too, Roger. You know, we have, we have some pretty good conversations. Um, if I say so myself, <laughs> uh, we, we have some pretty good conversations. And, and I think, you know, I think uh, um, something that really, I think helps both you and I to really, I think, bring up information I think is, is really helpful. I mean, is, is we've got the experience, you know, both you and I have got the experience. We've, we've been to the circus many times, right? So we kind of know what the circus is all about. And when you got guys like you and I that have been to the circus so many times and we're forward thinking people, I, I think it, it, it produces some pretty good, um, some pretty good content. And also it's fun. I mean, I've had a blast on this, on this podcast, on this episode, like the other two. So, so I want to thank you. Thanks a lot. We'll do it again next year, Darren. We'll see where things are at. I hope we're both, awesome. I hope we're both wrong on the interest rate thing, by the way. You know, you know, it'd be funny. We got, we got to lock this in <laughs> and then do like a time capsule podcast a year from now. <laughs> we got to do a time capsule podcast just to see, just to see where we're at. I hope we're wrong and I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, I do too. All right, man. See you. All right, see you. Bye. Bye.